everyone. Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan here with Ariella Thornhill, who I realize is wearing a striped shirt, as am I. Uh, it's painted <laughs> a little bit, but we match. Hey, what's yeah, up? We didn't plan this, but not at all. We just vibe like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. Um, Ariella, what's going on? I'm happy to be back on the show more consistently. Um, as sad as my segment is going to be <laughs> this episode. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we've got a lot to, to go over and a lot of things kind of pending that the left is going to have to deal with, including the looming eviction crisis, yes. massive, massive amounts of debt for people who haven't been paying rent, but their rent has been racking up. It's not probably not going to be forgiven. So we've got a lot to, um, you know, focus on going forward. And I think that this episode will be illuminating to some of the ideological underpinnings about what need is, who's deserving of help, who's deserving of forgiveness. And then more particularly, like the kind of neoliberal ideology of race Mm -hmm. and the way that that's going to play into those conversations going forward. I'm sure as everybody saw from the video title and description, our guests tonight are Adolf and Toure Reed. Uh, we got both of the Reeds um, on the show tonight, which is always exciting. They've been on separately in the past, um, but they have recently co-authored a new article for the Socialist Register uh, titled The Evolution of Race and Racial Justice Under Neoliberalism. So they'll be kind of breaking that down for us, um, talking about some of the themes you mentioned, Ariella, and I'm really excited to talk to them. They're always great. Yeah, me too. I, I'm excited that we're going to get a double read show today. <laughs> a, a double read show, exactly. <laughs> it's what the it's what our fans have been asking for, I'm imagining. And it's what Every, they're going to get. Like, everybody likes the reads. Everybody likes yeah. Toure. Everybody likes Adolf. Uh, we, we get such good feedback whenever they've been on separately. So I only imagine that the combined power of both Professor Reads will be totally overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, the mega read show. The mega read show. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, you know, I, I think we should save most of our discussion for the reads. Um, so mm-hmm. why don't we dive into our segments and um, we'll discuss those. Uh, as you had mentioned, our segments kind of work weirdly well together. Uh, that happens we a didn't lot. Plan like, this. We didn't plan this, just <laughs> yeah. like our striped matching shirts. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're both going to be talking about kind of the concepts of uh, deservedness and entitlement and kind of what it means to uh, pay into a society and what it means to get back from it. Um, So I think on that note, let me dive into what I was going to talk about, which is uh, taxes. Um, And, you know, I so taxes, obviously, you know, is kind of a controversial or contentious issue in the U.S. And I want to break down um, a little bit of why that is. So. About a decade ago, a group of wingnut fiscal conservatives launched a furious crusade to slash taxes, repeal Obamacare and balance the national budget. They, of course, called themselves the Tea Party movement, quickly found financial backing from the Libertarian Koch brothers, and eventually secured enough seats in Congress to form the hard-right Tea Party caucus. Now, especially given that this group also had a penchant for racist protest signs and anti-immigrant fear-mongering, the Tea Party immediately became the bane of Democrats everywhere. They also quickly attracted the scorn and ridicule of the liberal media. Here's one interview with Tea Partiers captured by a documentary group called New Left Media in 2010 that went viral as an example of how misinformed these ideologues were. 
Uh, what specific issues do you consider to be what's going to destroy life in, the, in America? Well, I believe unfair taxation is, is one of them. Yeah. Uh, the redistribution of wealth is another one. And you think that's been happening under Obama's administration? Absolutely, man. The full full force. Did you know uh, that he's uh, lowered taxes for 95% of working Americans? Um, that was when he first got into office, and you're talking a matter, it's the, it's this. a matter of $15 a week for someone, you know, and and beyond that, all the other onerous taxes getting shoved under the rug that we're not seeing. They've actually lowered taxes for 95% of working Americans? I would say that would be false. That would be false. I mean, now they're talking about a VAT tax. You just, you just don't believe it? No. There were $300 billion in tax credits given out to middle-class families uh, by uh, the Obama administration in this Congress with the Making Work Pay Credit. 400 for an individual, $800 for a couple. Where's who, where's who at? The, where's those middle-class families at? I don't see those middle-class families. I'm a middle-class family. I didn't receive a tax credit or a tax cut. I have to go to work every day hard to work to get the, the money to pay my light bill, to pay my water bill, to pay my house bill. If you didn't fill out for that tax cut in your IRS paperwork, they will go ahead and adjust it and send that back to you. I think you're misinformed. Hogwash. You don't. You don't. You just don't believe that? No. That's absolutely not. Tax credit or tax cut? I'm sorry. You were saying it was a right. tax credit, right? Yeah, that's different than a tax cut. No. <laughs> no what? Anybody that believes that is not really paying attention. And ultimately, we should all be paying up our own pair, fair share of the taxes because we all live in this country. When you hose the rich, you hurt America. Because I've never worked for a poor person. Uh, the gentleman I work for now is a wealthy individual. He's, he wasn't always wealthy, but he built his business up and is now a millionaire. God bless America. If we have people making billions upon billions of dollars, you, you think they should pay more, though, right? You certainly... No, I don't. They have the right to earn that money. Nobody has the right to take it away from them. So you don't think that uh, billionaires should pay more taxes than you? No, I don't. I think it should be a flat rate. Do you struggle financially at all, ever? Or yes, do you... absolutely. Yeah, I struggle to make my house payment every month. What sort of policies do you want to see changed? Mm. Well, to... Like to abolish the federal income tax, um, to repeal the health care bill, yeah. and um, end the Fed, <laughs> uh, stop spending, get rid of some agencies that we don't need. So as misguided as they may have been, there was one way in which the Tea Party was arguably the proverbial stop clock. The truth is that America's tax system often does screw over working people. First and foremost, I'm sure no one needs to be reminded that the U.S. makes it extremely cumbersome for its citizens to file and pay taxes every year. Filing taxes seems almost painful by design here in the U.S. If you look at the many, many lines on the tax code, they're just plethora of forms and additional uh, attachments that you may have to make. It's an incredibly complicated code. Um, it's over 7 million words long. The IRS estimates the average taxpayer spends 12 hours working on it and ends up paying an average of $230 to get their paperwork filed. Your tax return you know, is in no way that simple. I don't care who you are or what economic situation you're in. Now, for some of us, it is the largest single financial transaction that we make each and every year. Just take my case. I work for a company that's based in New Jersey, but I live in New York and in Manhattan specifically. So I have to pay federal income tax, state income tax for both New Jersey and New York, plus the city income tax for Manhattan. That is a whole lot of paperwork. 
In fact, the tax system is so confusing that, as we all know, it spawned an entire tax preparation industry that's now committed to keeping the process of filing taxes as difficult and opaque as possible, so of course they can rake in more money. In 2003, for instance, tax prep companies like TurboTax and H&R Block lobbied hard to kill a plan by the federal government to create a government-run free-filing option for lower-income Americans. The tax companies promised that they would create their own free-filing options instead, and they did. But in, 20, in 2019, ProPublica found that TurboTax and H&R Block were actually actively suppressing their free-file options in Google's search results. To further underscore how ridiculous this entire system is, we only have to look at how other countries handle taxes. As sociologist Monica Prasad pointed out in The Atlantic last year, in the Netherlands, the procedure is simple. First, you look over the form the government sends you with your taxes already calculated, and you check it. Second, you sign it and send it back. Third, well, there is no third. That's the entire process. Dutch citizens can file their taxes in minutes. This is the case in country after country. In Japan, Sweden, Estonia, and Great Britain, people don't have to file their taxes. They're spared the high-stress homework assignment that Americans face every year. And in fact, this wildly complicated tax system in the U.S. is not an accident. Prasad also writes, in the United States, filing taxes is painful by design. The tax collection system as we know it is the outcome of three forces, corporate lobbying, a stubborn resistance to borrowing good ideas from other Western nations, and the Republican Party's decades-long campaign against taxation itself. Now, on top of all of that, there's yet another reason why taxes in America are unfair to working people. It's the simple fact that, for decades, the rich have not paid their fair share in taxes at great expense to the rest of the country. Last year, the Rand Corporation estimated that decades of trickle-down fiscal policy, including tax cuts for the rich and financial deregulation, had essentially redistributed a staggering $50 trillion from the bottom 90% of Americans to the top 1% between 1975 and 2018. As a result, today, the rich often pay a much lower tax rate compared to many middle-class families. Just earlier this year, White House economists found that the 400 wealthiest families in the U.S. paid an average income tax rate of just 8.2 percent from 2010 to 2018. According to an analysis by the Center for American Progress, that's actually a lower tax rate than the one paid by a single first-year teacher, a couple that earns a median wage and rents their home, or a typical working family with two children. So yes, our country's system of taxation is incredibly broken, if not necessarily in the same way that the Tea Party thinks it is. The worst thing is that neither major political party has been willing to fight for fair tax policy. Of course, it won't surprise anyone that the Republicans have continued to advocate for lower taxes on the rich, including pushing through Trump's historically unpopular 2017 tax cuts. But lately, the Democrats also seem to be working overtime to appease the rich by lowering their taxes, even though taxing the wealthy is broadly popular among the American public. As David Sirota recently wrote, as millions of voters are being crushed by healthcare costs and higher energy prices, and as Democratic lawmakers have abandoned a $15 minimum wage, Democratic leaders are pushing a regressive proposal to allow wealthy property owners to deduct more of their state and local taxes, or SALT, from their federal taxes. That's right, Democrats in Congress want to enact a tax break that would cost $475 billion and give the richest 5% $400 billion in total tax cuts. 
As Bernie Sanders' office pointed out last month, if this plan actually went through, it would effectively allow the top 1% of income earners to pay lower taxes than they did even after the Trump tax cut of 2017. The irony of all of this is that despite politicians' best efforts to cut taxes for the rich and simultaneously turn Americans against the idea of taxation, is that surveys have consistently found that over 90% of Americans still view taxpaying as a civic duty. Now, as we all well know, the right has often successfully used this fact to, to, to direct a degree of middle-class anger over taxes downward at supposed freeloaders like welfare recipients or immigrants. Because of this resentment, some on the left have argued for retiring the term taxpayer. Earlier this year, in an article titled The Racist History of the Word Taxpayer and Why You Should Stop Saying It, Jeremy Moeller wrote that when people across the political spectrum invoke the concept of the taxpayer, quote, what they're really saying is that the richer you are, the more voice you should have in how the government spends money. If you're poor, especially if you're black or brown, well then, shut up and work harder. Now, there's no doubt that some conservatives genuinely do feel this way. But what if, in this era of ongoing tax breaks for the wealthy, corporations that pay no taxes whatsoever, and rampant tax offshoring, we reclaim the idea of the taxpayer in order to fight for soaking the rich? After all, it's our work that makes the wealth, and it's our taxes that currently subsidize corporate welfare. To put it another way, the truth is that there are freeloaders in our system who continue to sponge off of everyone who pays taxes. But of course, what the Tea Partiers never quite realized is that the freeloaders aren't at the bottom, they're the ones at the very top. Ariel, are you ready for tax season? God, no. <laughs> <laughs> Hearing the simplicity of other systems makes, makes my heart die. sink. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then I also am like, if that happened here, people would be extremely suspicious of why, right? <laughs> right. If the government sent you like a bill saying this is what mm -hmm. you need to pay, check a box if that's right. Oh, man, I, I don't think that'd go over. We have a long way to go. Um, I think we need to restore some faith in the system. And another way of doing that is taxing the rich. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to a theme that I think, you know, especially you and I talk about a lot on the show, which is that um, there's a kind of snowball effect of lack of trust in the government and our institutions. And the government itself, as we have talked about many times, is often the one that is actively undermining people's trust in, in themselves, right? In the mm -hmm. institution of government itself. Um, and, you know, something else we've talked about on the show before is this idea, um, uh, I believe the political scientist Suzanne Mettler calls it the submerged state. And that's the idea that, you know, the government is helping people, but the way that the U.S. government does it in particular is invisible by design, right? So mm -hmm. um, going back to the video of the Tea Partiers who are saying things like, well, I didn't get any tax cut. Like I'm middle class. I, I didn't get any Obama tax cut. Um, they, you know, they could be right. Or I mean, it actually makes sense that they wouldn't know that they had received mm -hmm. a tax cut because I mean, the way that the tax system I think is it set got up, lost in that 12 hour process. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I also think that, you know, tax code in this country is so complicated because we've wrapped up so many other benefits that are either universal exactly. or easily available through another system into our tax code. So your health benefits are now in your tax code. Yep. You can deduct child care and dependent benefits or costs in, in your 
tax filing. And it leaves people to be kind of, um, you know, making decisions that honestly, it took a team of hundreds, if not thousands of people who are experts in their field to figure out how to wrap that up into our tax code. Mm -hmm. And then you as an individual are supposed to jump into that and be like, what's my marginal tax benefit (laughs) if I had a dependent care FSA Mm -hmm. last year and then spent an additional $4,000 on childcare? Like the fact that we are leaving this down to individuals when we have experts create it, and that's on every stage, including the lobbyists, on every Mm -hmm. level intervention into tax code. The fact that normal people are then supposed to jump into that and be expected to like, you know, have, <laughs> have any bearing within right. that. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's unbelievably unfair and it's unfair on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, just to underscore all of that, um, again, something that we've talked about on the show before is like, the longer that the system continues, the harder it is to undo it. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, you know, now we have this entire massive tax preparation industry, which actually has a lot of lobbying power. And of course, they don't want the complicated system to go away, as I was saying during my segment, because they mm-hmm. actually make a lot of money off of it, you know? Um, so yeah. it's, it's really it's really difficult to undo. Um, I'm not really even sure how we go about doing it. Uh, but I guess just to... Uh, just to kind of wrap up, like I, I have very mixed feelings. I mean, maybe that was clear, but it's like, I like the tax system is unfair. And, you know, on the one hand, like, I really do want to acknowledge that, like, I hate filing taxes, just like everybody else. Um, I actually do believe that uh, in many ways, working people and middle-class people are getting screwed over by taxes, Um, not necessarily because they're being taxed too much. But when you think about, you know, the fact that wages have been stagnant for decades, the mm-hmm. fact that the there we have rising costs of living, and also the rich are not paying their fair share, like the middle class really is, or, you know, the working and middle class are subsidizing the rich. And that's just mm-hmm. like, completely insane. Yeah. And it, everything that our tax money pays into mm-hmm. is being fought on the other end, right? right? So it's it's complicated at like the point of funding, which is our tax money. And then it's essentially impossible, right, to see the return in a clear, exactly. uncomplicated way, except when it comes to the military, but only if you're not a veteran. Right, right exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, yeah. like, that's the other thing. Like, um, I, you know, I believe that, like, Obviously, everybody, regardless of how much taxes they pay, should have some say in our government. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, when you are, uh, you know, working family or whatever, and you're paying taxes, like, it's sometimes it's like, what am I getting in return? Like all Mm -hmm. of our social safety net programs are like totally broken. Uh, They all are like means tested to death or come with, you know, work requirements. You're going to talk about that a little bit Mm -hmm. later. Um, And so it's, it's actually really it, it makes sense to me why there's a lot of resentment toward the idea of taxes. Uh, now, that said, I do want to you know point out again that lots of Americans, uh, the majority of Americans think that the rich should pay more. They want to tax mm-hmm. corporations more heavily, and they believe that people should pay taxes. Like, despite all of this, I think Americans on the whole are still like, yeah, we need to pay taxes. So, yeah. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know, what do we do about it? That's 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 always the question, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do we fix, do we fix, fix the US right tax system the show? in 10 minutes yeah. or less? Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it starts it starts with, you know, declaring what exactly and specifically is unfair about it. And the first thing is that the rich are basically not taxed at all. Right. Exactly. Um, 
And, and that has to be our starting point. And then it needs to be, you know, an accessible interface for the government to actually collect that money without it being one unfair and two insanely and bizarrely complicated. And I think that means disentangling some of those benefits that are paid for through kind of what I'll refer to as the employer welfare state, right? Um, um, Employer guaranteed benefits and making those public and universal programs. Yep. Easy peasy. (laughs) You fixed it. (laughs) Um, On that note. (laughs) On the subject of universal programs. Yeah, let's talk about fraud. Let's do it. Um, My segment tonight is about welfare fraud. And and this is the other side, I guess, of what Jen and I are talking about. It is the reliable boogeyman anytime even a meager expansion of benefits is proposed. It's part of a broader way of conceptualizing the needy in America. We conceptualize them as entitled, undeserving, or duplicitous. And this has long been used as a racist dog whistle, conjuring to mind the infamous and misunderstood welfare queen Linda Taylor, Uh, who uh, did so much more broad criminal activity, including kidnapping, than than welfare fraud. But the image of her became a specter, haunting anybody asking for benefits for the poor. She became emblematic of those that were undeserving and grifting a system. And that racist stereotype ended up eclipsing the actual horrific things that she did, often to people of color and communities of color. But nonetheless, when we talk about welfare in America, what we hear is the familiar refrain of conservative centrist concern trolls. What about the con men, the bad actors who are spoiling this for everyone and running up the cost? Now, fraud should be a concern, but we don't hear this raised when, say, $21 trillion is lost by the Pentagon due to unexplained accounting errors. If that's not fraud, I don't know what is. When the military needs more money, fraud and entitlement are hardly mentioned, despite this revealing bit of information from an article by Routers, quote, some employees of the Defense Finance and Accounting Services, or DFAS, which handles a wide range of defense department accounting services, referred sardonically to preparation of the Army's year-end statements as, quote, the grand plug, Armstrong said. Plug is an accounting is accounting jargon for inserting made up numbers. But we're not going to call that fraud. This is orders of magnitude, more money than your typical welfare fraud. But let's put that aside. The other key issue with conceptualizing the problem of welfare fraud is that we have a misunderstood notion of the purpose of the welfare state. I'll let friend of the show, Matt Brunig, explain. The fundamental purpose of the welfare state is not to redistribute from the rich to the poor. That's not what we're... uh, Those aren't the relevant groups that you need to be thinking about. The real purpose of the welfare state is to redistribute to non-workers. That's really the whole game. We're trying to get money to people who don't work. And I think people shy away from this uh, a little bit because... uh, that seems to be a quite an offensive thing to throw out. People are like, what? Money to people who don't work? No, what? They, they should work. What, we, we should get them working. What? You, you should, if you don't work, you shouldn't get paid, etc. Right? Uh, no money for lazy people. You know, like that, that's where people go with it. And, and even the left, you see this to some degree because uh, people will be like, uh, well, um, 
we, we should just get people who aren't working, get them into work, get them jobs. As Matt goes on to explain, there's only really two ways of making money in the market. The first is through ownership of capital. The second is through paying, being paid wages as a worker. If you are in the group of people that can't work or own capital, there is no way for you to get money. And without money, you will die. And jobs don't just provide us with access to the money we need to live. They are also a gateway to other essential resources like healthcare and retirement benefits. Welfare is specifically for those who cannot get money or benefits through work. It is meant to make sure those people who are primarily children, the disabled, and the elderly don't die in a system that gives them no other means to live. Let's take a closer look at those groups. Here's some figures from the People's Policy Project. We can see that of non-workers, the majority are children. Second to them are the elderly, disabled, and then there are groups like students and caregivers who are doing a kind of work that's not rewarded by the market. Then you have the unemployed, non-elderly, retired, and other. So let's turn back to fraud. Fraud is the boogeyman used at its mildest to create barriers to receiving assistance and at its worst to ending it altogether. Let's look at this story on food stamp fraud from CNBC. It is the main federal food assistance program paying out more than $60 billion a year. But attorney Todd Spodek says food stamps are riddled with fraud. It's an epidemic. Total numbers on food stamp fraud are hard to come by, but the Agriculture Department, which runs the program, says 6.8% of payments are in error, either too much or too little. Some 40 million Americans rely on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, what's commonly known as food stamps. For many, it's the difference between surviving and going hungry. But that's not always the case. In a story told in The Next American Greed, fundamentalist Mormon sect leader Lyle Jeffs admits he ran a $2 million scam, forcing followers to funnel their SNAP benefits to the church and to him. Literally, we were starving. But most SNAP fraud is smaller scale, like recipients fudging their applications or retailers selling items that aren't covered. Anytime you have a public welfare system where millions of dollars are uh, at their disposal, someone's going to be creative enough to try to find a loophole. The Trump administration says its plan could save $2.5 billion a year. But critics say the program works well for its size and the changes would cut off millions of the truly needy. Scott Cohn, CNBC's American Greed. This scaremongering about fraud, putting aside the Mormon fraudster who forced his parishioners to go hungry so that he could get $2 million in food stamps benefits is nothing new. We are being told by this segment that food stamp fraud is an epidemic happening. It is implied around 6.8% of the time, but this is a deliberate misrepresentation of the data since some of those errors are underpayments, not overpayments. And according to the USDA, over 99% of those receiving SNAP benefits are eligible and payment accuracy was 96.2% in 2011, a historic high. But this kind of logic has been used to degrade these programs. And because these programs serve the most vulnerable, measures to curb fraud usually target the most vulnerable. These stories drum up support for gate gatekeeping mechanisms and means testing that make it harder for regular people to access desperately needed benefits. In the case of food stamps, 76% of recipients are households with children. 
And unfortunately, in the U.S., when given the choice between cutting down on fraud or feeding children, politicians have picked the latter. Take, for instance, Reagan's $1.5 billion cut of school lunch funds, funds that are specifically targeted at a group of people who, by their very definition, cannot work. Kids. I stated a moment ago our intention to keep the school breakfast and lunch programs for those in true need. But by cutting back on meals for children of families who can afford to pay, the savings will be $1.6 billion in fiscal year 1982. Unsurprisingly, after that cut, child poverty rates increased and other welfare cuts by Reagan made them continue to rise. Here's Reagan on the rationale for those cuts. All in all, Nearly $216 billion worth of programs providing help for tens of millions of Americans will be fully funded. But government will not continue to subsidize individuals or particular business interests where real need cannot be demonstrated. So the idea was thrust millions of children into poverty because some children didn't have a real need for food because some children's families, or their parents rather, couldn't demonstrate a real need. And therefore, it's unfair and unnecessary to provide all children, or most children, or some children, with subsidized lunches. This was, of course, part of a broader process of retrenchment and austerity that has been consistent in every administration since Reagan. But let's imagine for a second that fraud is a real problem. We have already seen that it's overstated. We've already seen that these benefits are already targeted towards people who have no means to live since they are not in the labor market. And we've seen far worse and more egregious fraud in other areas of the U.S. government. But let's imagine fraud's a problem nonetheless. Is fraud more of an issue than children starving? Is fraud more of an issue than elderly people becoming homeless because of their inability to afford housing? Is it more of an issue than disabled people having higher rates of poverty than those without a disability? To be very clear here, yes, we need higher wages for working people, but we also need to stop viewing work as the only way to receive what is necessary to live. We will always have those who cannot work. We need them in our society. Obviously, we need children, elderly people. Obviously, we shouldn't consign people to suffering because a disability leaves them unable to work. We need programs that make sure there isn't a crack for those people to fall through. That requires that the left be very clear about who welfare is for and why it exists. That requires that we combat the idea of rampant welfare fraud, but also that we essentially say, who cares? On balance, it is better to enable millions of people to thrive than have a few quote unquote bad actors. On balance, it is better than consigning millions to poverty so that a few people don't take advantage of the system. Well said. Uh, it, it, the statistics about, you know, the Pentagon's <laughs> yeah. extreme exorbitant. Speaking of, of taxes. Money. Speaking of taxes. No, I mean, that's exactly what I thought of because, you know, um, again, to go back to something that, you know, some of the Tea Partiers were complaining about, like the waste and the fraud in the system, like in a weird way, they're right. It's there. Mm-hmm. It's just not what they think mm-hmm. it is. Um, that's the first thing I thought about when you showed those Pentagon numbers. And I think that you're in, you know, absolutely right that uh that you know it's it's ridiculous to kind of concentrate on these small instances of fraud uh even if it were actually happening 
who the fuck mm-hmm. cares? Yeah. Does that mean we have to just say, okay, sorry, children, you're not going to eat all children or sorry, every disabled person. No, we're not going to give you like housing assistance. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's an unbelievable trade-off. And if we were, you know, doing the, rather than doing the kind of fiscal math, and I still don't think fraud is a huge, huge issue in terms of running up the government budget, but rather than doing that, if we thought about the benefit to society Mm -hmm. by having happy people, well cared for people, children who are fed and care of and fed. Yeah. Yeah. I I actually want to run this clip that I found. I didn't integrate it into my segment, but um, I was looking up statistics on um, child hunger. And I want to run this and talk to you about it a little bit before we go to the reads. My mom always taught me like to let the little ones eat first. And I'm like in the middle. Yeah, me too. Like, I make sure my brother and sister eat first. What I like about breakfast is that you can um, rely on the breakfast being here, not it being gone and not being too late. So aside from just how heartbreaking it is to see these kids talk about letting their younger siblings eat um, when they don't have enough food, at the end of the clip, it says, no child deserve or every child deserves breakfast. No, every child needs food to live. Right, we right, don't exactly. have to double down on the narrative that in order to have food to live, you need to deserve it. Right. We are entitled to our lives. Right. Right. Um, you know, it, 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 it kind of reminds me of one reason why I've never been crazy about like privilege discourse, like whether mm-hmm. it's talking about like white privilege, so to speak, or like class privilege or whatever. Um, And, you know, part of the reason is because I feel like so often when people are talking about privilege, they're actually just talking about rights. And Mm -hmm. like, we should call it that, you know? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And so again, you know, to go back to what you're saying about the kids, like, um, does every child deserve breakfast? I mean, like, in in a kind of like general sense, like, yeah, of course. But like, it's like, not because they like are innocent or pure mm-hmm. or like did something right or whatever, or like go to school or whatever. Like they're just a human being um, and they are entitled yes. to food. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, I think that that was something that was really powerful about like Bernie Sanders campaign and also just his rhetoric that he like, he always seemed to presume that everybody is entitled to certain, to, to a decent life. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is that, that absolutely cuts against what we've seen with the last several decades of austerity politics, as you pointed out, basically from Reagan onward. Um, and I think that also cuts against some, some of the rhetoric surrounding things like work requirements, right. Which is mm-hmm. uh what Clinton famously attached to welfare uh, in the nineties, basically in order to gut welfare. Yeah. And that was one of uh, Reagan's, you know, policy points as well. So I watched an hour of him talking about (laughs) (laughs) welfare. Yeah, not a huge uh, amount of difference between Mm -hmm, how they treated the poor. And a lot of it does play into whether or not it is derived from, right? And it is derived from neoliberal politics Mm -hmm. that don't care about human life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the narrative used to justify it is like some people deserve this and some people don't. And the people that don't deserve this are taking advantage of the people that do. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we have to crush, Mm -hmm. you know, at every possible turn. 
I mean, when, you know, listening to you talk about different ways in which various administrations have tried to um, bring up this idea of fraud, whether it be for welfare, food stamps or whatever, um, and then also thinking about work requirements, like work requirements never actually got people to go back to work. Uh, They're just extremely punitive. And the whole point was to strangle the system, introduce Mm -hmm. all these administrative burdens and try to kick as many people off welfare as possible. I feel like the same thing is going on with all of the talk around fraud. No, like those people Mm -hmm. don't actually care that like somebody's taking advantage of the system somewhere. Or I mean, maybe they do care, but I'm sure they also know that that's like, it's, I mean, it's so small. A tiny amount. Yeah. Exactly. That's just, that's an accounting, that's a rounding error for the Pentagon. Let's put it that way. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and these, you're absolutely right. These things are meant to discourage people by creating, you know, an amount of government surveillance that's humiliating, Mm -hmm. an amount of paperwork that is impossible to keep up with. Mm -hmm. And then kicking people off of welfare for supposed fraud that's actually computer errors or that's just a generated response that you get every time you apply. Mm -hmm. So you have to do it over and over and over and over again. I think I did a segment about this with um, Medicare and Mm -hmm. people have died. Mm -hmm. People have died because of this Mm -hmm. waiting for the right paperwork or their, you know, they, they get to like amend their paperwork or refile or, you know, they, they end up essentially being trapped in a years long process of trying to just get basic needs met. Right. And then, you know, to circle back to basically what we brought up at the beginning of the show and many other shows, that just further undermines trust in our various institutions, in mm-hmm. the government. Um, obviously, when the government makes these programs extremely difficult to access and like, you know, massively punitive and surveils you, you're not going to want to trust the government in other areas of life either. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And, you know, the other kind of form of welfare fraud, if we want to call it that, is just massive companies relying on welfare to plug the gap between the um, below poverty rate wages that they pay their workers and those workers need to continue to live. Right. And that's, you know, been focused on, I think, you know, very well, especially, yeah, in the Bernie campaign. <laughs> I didn't hey. need to mention Bernie too, but yeah, going after targeting Starbucks, targeting right. Walmart, Walmart, targeting yep. Target, um, right. and yeah. saying you need to be paying your employees a living wage. But still, right, we still need to disaggregate other benefits from the wage, I think. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. need to say that your right to health care is a right, right, regardless, regardless of your yeah. wage or where you're working. Your right yeah. to retire is a right. Your right to vacation. All of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it, it reminds me of um, the, I think he's a sociologist, Michael Denning, his famous quote that the only thing worse than being exploited under capitalism is not being exploited. Um, yeah. That, of course, just speaks to how, how difficult it is to live under capitalism if you're not a wage earner. And as you've pointed out, like there are many, many people who are not wage earners and mm-hmm. like who shouldn't be. <laughs> Yeah. And the People's Policy Project, I have to plug, and and also the Brunigs' podcast, which we took the audio from, you know, they just give really sensible, concrete solutions for this. Like, pay children, give children money. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, on first blush maybe sounds crazy to people, but children can't work. 
-hmm. and they live in a household and they require money to live. Mm -hmm. So give them that money. Instead of burdening the working people within the household, you've essentially evened it out. If a person mm -hmm. has a disability, that the, the working person, the person who's able to work doesn't have to do more, right? Or they can be a caregiver mm -hmm. and still have, you know, what they need to live. I would highly recommend listening to that uh, episode and just them in general. I think we make this joke every time Matt comes on the show, but what if the kids just got jobs? <laughs> yeah. That's a real suggestion that's been thrown out though. Right. right. It's yeah. like barely a joke we're making because some people take it seriously. Right. Yeah. And uh, uh, no, we obviously advocate. Oh, I also, Hi. I just have to say, Jen, that it's, it's just one more woman erased on our show. That is not Michael <laughs> Jennings quote from earlier. Joan Robinson's quote. The uh, very important Keynesian economist. Oh, shit. Thanks, Kim. Um, oh, no. You're an ally. Well, I feel like cut that or something. No, no. I this is part of the show. Um, <laughs> this is I, part of the show. I, oh, it's shit. just my sorry, guys. My, this is my regular show appearance to advocate for women. Hashtag ally, Kale. That isn't Michael Denning. That's not from Wageless Life or whatever. No, I think maybe he paraphrased her. Yeah. Well, may, right. Maybe Michael Denning did not properly cite. Yeah, let's throw. Let's anyway, throw him glad, <laughs> glad that Kale's here, here to uh, rep the lady. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also here to say that we are going to toss to the Adolf Reed and Ture Reed interview now. So we are now joined by Adolf Reed Jr., who is, of course, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of several books, including W.E.B. Du Bois and American Political Thought, Stirrings in the Jug and Class Notes. And his forthcoming book, which is titled The South, Jim Crow and Its Afterlives, is going to be out early next year from Verso. We are also here with Toure Reed. He is professor of history at Illinois State University. And of course, you know him as the author of the book Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism. Uh, they have both been on the show in separate form uh, in the past, but we are very happy to have Professor Reed and Reed here tonight. Uh, good to see you guys. Uh, good to have a son. Thank you. It's good to see my son. <laughs> you know, it's, it's been a while, actually. I don't remember yeah. the last time I saw you. Was it in the summer? Uh, yeah, it may have been, actually. Yeah. Yeah, the Ithaca thing. Right. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank well, you, Ariella and Jen, for having us. It's great to see yeah. you as well. Yep. Yeah, Absolutely. we're so happy to have you both on. We're going to be talking, I think, primarily about your article, The Evolution of Race and Racial Justice Under Neoliberalism. Uh, but I, I'm sure we'll kind of diverge and expand that as well. Um but it was very illuminating, especially of a tendency to both individualize solutions to problems and then um, create a kind of false aggregation or false coalition of quote unquote black politics. And I, I wanted to start there actually with our questions and ask you about the misrepresentation of the black body politic, which is itself a kind of racist notion that essentializes a group of people and their political aims on a on the spurious base of race. Um, it flattens different interests between and within the black populations of the U.S. Um, between classes. So who are the champions of this notion of black politics and what do they stand to gain from that? Uh, yeah, I'll try to get the ball rolling. Like I was going to say that actually, uh, I mean, Ture has been sharper and more um, eloquent on this point, point than I have. Uh, but it's, um, yeah, well, look, um, here's the opener. And this is a line I'm taking from him. Uh, 
that the size of the black American population is just about identical to the size of the Canadian population. So, so if we pause and think for a second, well, Canadians believe X and Canadians want X, we might have a sense of how preposterous such a notion is, depending on the stereotypes that people walk around with about Canadians. I mean, I think they're gentle. Mm-hmm. For instance. <laughs> uh, but uh, so... So that should tell you that there's some ideology at work here, right? Uh, right, and with this notion of the black body politic, um, and that um, again, like when, so when at the beginning of the um, of the Sanders second campaign for the for the Democratic presidential nomination, I remember talking to Ray, and I think he actually talked to um, a friend of ours who has voice in, or who had a voice in the campaign uh, that, uh, you know, to make the point that this notion that Bernie had to appeal to something called the black vote was a terrible mistake because the black vote is is indeed an ideological class skewed construction that Mm -hmm. doesn't connect with the interests and concerns of the, of the masses of working black, black Americans, but it's a tough pill uh, or, or rather, it's a tough drug for people to stop taking, right? Because it's so familiar. And one of the reasons that it's familiar is that um, is that it's been part of the notion of what a black leader is since the notion of a black leader first came into existence, which can roughly be dated from September eighteenth, eighteen ninety-five, when Booker T. Washington gave that speech at the Atlanta Cotton States Exposition Address where he was auditioning for the role of Negro leader. So when you think about all of the generations now that have come together around questions like, well, what does the Negro want? What does the Black man want even? What what does the African-American community want? It's a tough habit for people to break. But just because it's a tough habit for people to break doesn't make it any less wrongheaded or, I don't know, what's the word, racist. Right, because it is fundamentally a racist perspective on on this large, diverse population. I'm done. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, when you started, I was reflecting on Booker T. Washington, so it's funny that you went there, and I was going to go a slightly different way, but but overlapping. Um, and this relates to an, an aspect of the question, which was who benefits from it, and from the notion of. Uh, black politics and, of course, a black leadership class. And in keeping with my father's point and his reference to Washington, it, it's certainly complicated who benefits from it. But often enough, um, if we take this back to, you know, I guess our favorite whipping boy, Booker T. Washington, you, you can kind of see that the beneficiaries are often enough class skewed. That Washington, uh, Booker T. Washington, who I, I think we all know and, and hopefully don't all love, um, is known for known as among other things, the principle of Tuskegee Institute, right. And having been a, a former slave born into slavery and of course, arising from the shackles of, of bondage to being the Negro leader by 1895. And one thing that's sort of interesting about Washington and, and someone who's involved in this uh, exchange had likened president Obama to Washington. And I'll let that person elaborate on this if, if he is so inclined, but one of the things that's sort of interesting about Washington is, of course, while in mythology, we think of Washington as this great sort of um, individual uplift story, right? Um, and, of course, he couldn't have had Tuskegee Institute. It wouldn't have been possible to, to fund Tuskegee Institute had he not had the backing of a northern 
philanthropist class uh, and the enlightened uh, nascent business class in the South were looking to accommodate Blacks to second-class citizenship, right, who were engaged in a, pro- a project intended to, for all intent and purpose, nullify the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And I should say, for all intent and purpose, to nullify the 13th. Unambiguously, I would say, to nullify the 14th and 15th Amendments. And their project was the exploitation of the Black masses on some level. And, and of course, not just the Black masses, we should also acknowledge um, the... the um, sharecropper, the, the growing white sharecropper class as well, right? I mean, because their, their end game was to secure as close as possible uh, rightsless uh, laborers um, who were primed for exploitation. The principal beneficiary, well, I learned in Black History Month uh, a long, long time ago in the 70s that Booker T. Washington was a great Black leader. And that was a, a tough thing, to a tough pill to swallow when I came home once again and got, got the smack back, uh, if you will, <laughs> <laughs> from my father when I came home with this this great pearl of wisdom. Um, but but while many of us learned uh, in Black History Month over the last so many decades that Washington was a great Black leader, and, it, and it's true, or he was a great Black leader in, insofar as he was the most influential Black leader in American life from 1895 to about 1915. He was because white people said so, right? And it's not all white people. It's... Uh, the white ruling class, if you will, which is maybe a bit reductive, but but a stratum of the right ruling class funded him with the end game of the exploitation of the black masses. It's kind of hard to take pride. One could uh, take pride, I suppose, in that that project. But I think if one looks at black politics through the lens of great leaders without considering who who are charged with the responsibility of representing the Negro race, without considering what that project actually can mean, then that leaves one vulnerable to charlatans. And of course, individuals who, if if charlatan is a bit too opaque, individuals who certainly represent black people insofar as they check a block, uh, check off the box that indicates that they're black, right. Or look the part in some way. But if their power base doesn't come from black Americans, then they represent some other constituency Since 1964, we could say, um, you know, the class stratification in Black America has become, you know, more intense, right? I mean, the class cleavages among Blacks have sharpened. And while I think it was clear that there were, um, there was class stratification in Washington's day, there was class stratification during the Great Migration among Blacks, there's class stratification during, from the New Deal through uh, World War II, uh, with the victories of the modern civil rights movement, class ratification among Blacks has become more significant. And it is, I would say, much more difficult uh, to make a compelling case that Blacks share a unitary interest today. But to just tie this up, um, <clears throat> if you insist that they do, then that sets us up again for um, empowering individuals who represent a constituency uh, who happens to be black, but in all probability, what, what that, what those individuals would represent is a kind of class politics, uh, the class politics that, that is owed to their connections with in the, the, the capital D democratic party or among white elites. 
So I, I want to pause on 1964, uh, which you mentioned, because uh, that comes up uh, in, you know, your Socialist Register piece. Um, this is, of course, the year that Lyndon Johnson signs into law, both the Economic Opportunity Act, which, of course, inaugurates the war on poverty, um, and then, of course, the Civil Rights Act. So um, one thing I found really interesting in your piece is that you argue that both of these landmark bills are really significant for kind of reshaping the trajectory of Black politics in the U.S. So maybe, Ture, if you could, like, start by kind of giving us some of the historical context leading up to the passage of these bills. Um, why did these bills make it through, whereas, for example, the Freedom Budget uh, did you know, kind of fell by the wayside. Um, and then maybe Adolf, after that, you could pick up on, you know, talking about how these bills sort of ended up changing the fight for racial equality in the U.S. Um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is obviously a really important piece of legislation. I mean, I, I, I think is transparently critical of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, as my father and I are. Um, I think our criticisms are come down to the fact that it was incapable of redressing the 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 large um spectrum of problems that african americans faced in that time period uh i think we are both quite pleased with certain elements of the civil rights act of 1964 um we're both you know um i think we like title seven with caveat right and title seven mm-hmm. of course is something that we talk about in this piece uh and of course we think it's appropriate uh, to prevent employers from discriminating against, uh, uh, or sorry, for businesses um, discriminating against folks in the public sphere, right? Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of good things that come out of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but among the problems with the 1964 the Act that we explore is that it was not capable of addressing the problems that, let's say, the organizers of the 1963 March on Washington, who would go on to put together the Freedom Budget for All, uh, had, had pointed to, which was that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 addressed the problem of discrimination, but it did not address the problems that were, uh, the political economic problems that were impacting Blacks disproportionately in the form of automation. And you could say the legacy costs of redlining, right, where Blacks were confronted, or were rather the, the disproportionate victims of deindustrialization at that stage of the game as cities function had begun to transform uh, with the assistance of the Highway Act. And so you have uh, corporate flight first from central cities to the suburbs and then right to work states. And then ultimately, you know, the far flung corners of the globe, all in pursuit of cheaper and cheaper labor. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, as important as it was, wasn't really about addressing those issues. And again, it addressed narrowly workplace discrimination, uh, in, in this case, by way of Title VII, uh, which could not then um, provide assistance to Blacks in coping with those other political economic developments. The Economic Opportunity Act is kind of cut from the same cloth. I mean, they're all part of the same, they're all part of an inadequate war on poverty on some level, which certainly perceived that there were other problems afoot, but too much of the Economic Opportunity Act, I think, centered less on the disproportionate impacts of automation and deindustrialization on Blacks and more on problems like the soft and hard skill sets deficits that Blacks and other workers who, um, you know, were, uh, who were overrepresented among poor people faced. And in both instances, what you have is through the Johnson administration um, following through on the limitations of the Kennedy administration before it, 
a failure to address structural the structural transformation of the U.S. economy that was already underway uh, demonstrably, demonstrably uh, by the mid-1950s, right? I mean, this, this is the fact that there is a decline in um, the, the number of entry-level, good-paying, uh, unionized jobs that you can trace back to, I think, about 1953, which meant uh, that the avenues for upward mobility that whites had taken from the tenements to the suburbs uh, beginning you know, during the Second World War had already begun to narrow after the Korean War had ended. The fact of the matter is that you know, the Johnson administration sidestepped for all intent and purpose efforts that might have addressed the disproportionate impact of the structural transformation of the U.S. economy from a blue-collar blue manufacturing economy to one that was moving more and more rapidly toward uh, service and high-tech economy. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, I would just add that, um, uh, you know, that the fifties moment is really important and people don't think about that very much. And I guess, you know, this is one of the problems though, like, uh, you know, with this kind of historical analysis, you can wind up, it's like un, 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 you know, unraveling a, a woolen threader or a sweater rather. But, um, but the big defeat, I think that we suffered that a progressive left of center forces suffered uh, was already like in the late 40s, uh, you know, the defeat that took the form of uh, the, de- uh, the defeat of the real full employment bill in 1945, the defeat of the Murray Dingle Wagner Act, which would have um, expanded uh, uh, a social security program to give us national health insurance, among other things. And then, of course, the passage of, of Taft-Hartley. So for the next for that period, and, and, and Samir Santi's work on this is really great. Um, from the end of the Korean War um, until end of the Kennedy administration, um, you know, we acted out class struggle through a kind of um, Aesopian debate between uh, you know, the norm of full employment versus the norm of currency stability right, and uh, control of inflation. And that became more and more prominent as a way of understanding the polls in national political discourse until the Kennedy administration came down squarely in, in, in favor of, uh, of currency stability as the main concern. So why, why am I going off about that? Well, because what, what, what happened then was that in this context, it's in the late, late 50s that poverty gets discovered, or I would argue in, invented, as a way of understanding economic inequality, right? Uh, and it's a way that's fundamentally disconnected from political economy, right? And if you reconstruct the discourse about poverty, even you know, coming from, from people with, with left credentials like you know, Michael Harrington, it's much more a culturalist you know, discourse, all right? Uh, and then that sets us up then for the confrontation within the Kennedy and Johnson administrations between um, 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 uh, one element that was centered in the labor movement and the labor department, and the other element that was centered in the Ford Foundation, basically. So, like, so I've already said what side I'm on, haven't I? Um, <laughs> but where the latter tendency in, insisted that people were poor because not because of stuff going on with the economy, right? Uh, you know, uh, uh, um, um, I mean, labor, uh, the labor secretary, Willard Wirtz, 
just said, well, look, I mean, people are poor because they don't have jobs to pay them enough money. So what we need to do to fight poverty is have a federal jobs program. The smart guys from the Ford Foundation thought, no, 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 like they're poor because they don't have a good sense of personal esteem. What we need to do is, is develop programs that will build a sense of social efficacy. And then somehow that would magically convert into people being able to get out of poverty. It also coincidentally provided um, one substantive uh, you know, response um, to, um, uh, um, you know, to rising uh, Black American demands for political incorporation. And the war on poverty programs uh, became uh, a significant mechanism for um, boosting uh, you know, Black political incorporation. Uh, and not just in the South, uh, um, it's quite important in the South, in places like, like in New Orleans and Atlanta, um, uh, uh, war on poverty spending helped to, to, uh, um, to advance a thaw in um, old school race relations that sort of fueled a kind of business-led uh, or business-friendly approach to desegregation, uh, but, uh, you know, but also in cities out, outside the South, right? This was like... Um, you know, the, uh, the combination of the war on poverty and, and the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and then especially the Voting Rights Act the following year, created the material conditions for, for the emergence and consolidation of a Black political class, right, or a class of, of Black political functionaries. And that's what became the foundation for what, we have, what has been understood as black, black politics ever since then. The invention so, of so okay. I mean, in that sense, I was going to say in that sense, like it's always been a sharply class skewed affair. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to elaborate on a on a point that I thought you might want to elaborate on, which is the uh, matter of the invention of poverty, um, or at mm-hmm. least the, the the turn to making sense of inequality by exploring it as poverty rather than low wages uh, and unemployment. Uh, That's and... actually one of the questions I wrote, so I'm really glad that oh, you're... Good. Good. So sh- <laughs> you beat so me should to I it. Let it go. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you should answer it. Um, yeah, do it. Because I think that it's unclear to people that that was a transition, right? Mm-hmm. I think that sure. our, we have we have a dominant cultural logic or a, a kind of common sense around poverty that Jen and I. Um, kind of gesture to in a bunch of segments, but particularly in my segment earlier, where we think it's a matter of, you know, that that there is a fair marketplace, right? And that um, those that are deserving and skilled are rewarded by that fair marketplace. And if they're not, then it's because of some pathology or, mm-hmm. um, you know, a personal failure. That wasn't the common sense about poverty in American history. And there was a turn towards it that I don't think people are fully aware of. So, and it's particularly impactful, obviously, for the racial justice movement. Um, and I think, you know, famously through the Moynihan Report, culture of poverty kind of line, even though I think that that was pr- maybe slightly misunderstood in, in what he was trying to say. But there was a liberal turn in, in tr- kind of treating poverty like it was a, um, a set of behaviors, attitudes, affects, and pathologies, and that it should be targeted that way. And so you get the famous, like, a mind is a terrible thing to waste, right? Or you get a respectability politics that's telling Black people that in order to um, combat 
issues of racism or um, disenfranchisement, the goal for them should be to better function for the standards of the market and to eliminate those pathologies. And despite our progress, I think it's gotten worse in a way. Now mindfulness is part of every corporate boardroom, no matter what race you are. I, I think there are ways in which that tendency has gotten more extreme. So I would love for you to unpack the history of that. Well, I'll, I'll get the ball rolling and I'll turn the virtual mic over to my pop after this. I um, I know that Michael Katz, had, who was a scholar I, I very much admired, uh, and, and so that means that I really liked his work, but I was surprised to learn that in early 2000s that he thought, that he insisted that underclass ideology uh, had run its course, that um, the appeal of underclass ideology had faded, when, if anything, um, it struck me that it was hegemonic, even more hegemonic, right? Um, people maybe didn't use the term underclass by the early 2000s, but you didn't need the term anymore because it was just part of the, the common sense of what poor people were, um, you know, across racial lines, I might add. So I had, um, for a number of years, beginning about 10 or 15 years ago, I frequently asked my students what the defining characteristics of poor people were. And there was really one answer I was looking for. And interesting thing is, I rarely got the answer that I was looking for. What I got from them was that poor people were, were um, you know, they didn't work hard. So they were you know, lazy, basically. They didn't value education. They were irresponsible. So they used drugs and you know, made a lot of babies. And the last thing that students were disposed to say um, is that, they were unemployed, underemployed, or, or just fundamentally for some other reason, didn't have enough money. Uh, and, and, and so that was, along with the response to Hurricane Katrina, I would say too, was where clear, that was a clear expression of the hegemony of this stuff. And what we get, as you said, Ariella, and my father had alluded to earlier, is an insistence that poverty is fundamentally a character flaw. Uh, and you see this all over the place, right? I mean, you see this in the stand-up work of comedians ranging from, it's not a big range that I'm going to point to, I'll just point to two that I like, Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle. You see versions of that <laughs> running through their stuff to, to varying degrees. Um, and you could certainly make the case that prior to the New Deal, people understood poverty, viewed poverty through the lens of defectiveness too. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. W.B. Du Bois, it's funny that people often enough attach themselves to Du Bois at the stretch of his life where it might make sense to call him a radical Democrat, but overlooking how long he lived and what kind of politics he had, let's say, in the late, in the 1890s uh, that informed his take on the, uh, in, the take on poverty and Black Philadelphia that one finds in the Philadelphia Negro. Um, also, yeah. sorry, just to briefly interject, I think a sure. lot of these things also um, were part and parcel of a eugenicist notion of the way that intelligence is spread across race or gendered notions of intelligence, things that presumed like a biological primacy to what would make one successful. And I think Du Bois like more than nodded at that. <laughs> definitely, <laughs> some more of than, notions. <laughs> definitely more than nodded. Um, but but even among even in one's his and others more enlightened moments, there is a culturalist dimension to this. I mean, I don't know that you can always clearly uh, distill from the the culture of poverty and the biology of poverty for those who embrace those kinds of uh, frameworks. But uh, the subjects of my first book, the National Urban League, 
certainly on the one hand, pushed back against eugenics, or at least the scientific racism understanding of eugenics in the years before the New Deal. But on the other hand, the way that they pushed back against eugenics came down to kind of culturalist understandings of poverty, uh, at least in part, right, uh, that centered on cultural tutelage for, you know, the benighted Black migrant masses, uh, let's say. And interesting enough, I mean, something on the spectrum of, of Robin DiAngelo, uh, in a sense, but 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 that's not fair to the Urban League. It was much better than Robin DiAngelo, for what it's worth. <laughs> uh, I've thus set the bar pretty low, though, so that's a problem. But anyway, uh, insofar as they presumed that if Blacks demonstrated their assimilability, that um, those demonstrations uh, of acculturation uh, would basically push back effectively against racism. You know, obviously, when you get to the New Deal and the popular front, though, the sensibilities of even fairly conservative Black Americans change uh, quite a bit. And you get an understanding of poverty that's much more rooted in political economy. You have Black activists who insist, among other things, that finally, at this point, that that the Booker T. Washington framework that should actually sound kind of familiar to us now, kind of individualist, uh, almost bootstraps, but, but certainly entrepreneurial oriented strategy for group uplift, in which entrepreneurs would pull up the masses of Blacks. That, it's like that the was, first hustle <laughs> culture <laughs> you know, influencer it, it was. was Booker T. Washington. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> minus the pernicious influence of Russell Simmons and the downstream pernicious influence <laughs> of the OMTV raps many, many decades down the line, but, yeah. but very much so. But, but again, by the Great Depression, certainly by the New Deal, Black activists and political organizers understood that to be backward because they appreciated the fact that in capitalism, most people couldn't be entrepreneurs, right? So, I mean, most of us had to be workers and that was the case certainly for, for Black Americans. So you have that, that piece that informs the pushback against that stuff. And um, the path forward as they understood it since there was a kind of randomness. I mean, there, there were forces beyond the control of in, any individual Black person or white person. The path forward to you know, racial group progress wasn't entrepreneurialism as they saw it but something more on the spectrum of social democracy uh, for, for many. I mean, you can look at, uh, let's say, the NAACP annual conference from 1933 and literally have people who are participants, right? It's not random Joe Schmoes, but, but participants literally pushing back against the, the Washingtonian uh, understanding of group progress that I, that I alluded to explicitly and unambiguously, right? And in that moment, where millions of whites have been impacted negatively, some devastated, and, and an even greater percentage of Blacks um, have been devastated by the Great Depression. Then you get, you know, an unambiguous appreciation for the, um, the problem with culturalist uh, interpretations of inequality, right? Uh, and those come back, obviously, to jump ahead in Cold War, and they come, come back with abandon. Uh, now, one thing that's distinct, I suppose, from the Cold War era with the invention of poverty as something, um, as a condition that is uh, that exists apart from, from political economy, is that that really was a pushback, right? I mean, it, that was on the heels of a broad collective understanding that poverty wasn't poverty, but instead it was joblessness and low wages. Uh, and it's not a done deal in the 50s. It takes a while. Uh, to for that side to win, and my father alluded to a number of the, of the political forces that had to come in line uh, 
to get us to where we were by Moynihan. But but when you get to the Kennedy Johnson administration, it's certainly not accurate to say that the jig is up because there's still some more fighting to to be done on this matter. But um, it's pretty clear at that point, um, it, in retrospect anyway, that um, this was the beginning of the end, right? Um, or or maybe it was the end of the end uh, by Nixon, I suppose, because the beginning of the end was a little earlier. I imagine my dad wants to elaborate on this. So I'll shut up and turn the virtual mic over to him. Yeah, I could just say a little bit more about this, but uh, but uh, but uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, um, but but yeah, I think it is useful to say something about uh, how that struggle in the fifties uh, went, right? And 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 played out. And I know this isn't what we had anticipated talking about. Probably not what you guys anticipated. Uh, for us to talk about either. But um, so for this other book that I've been working on for a long time, I've, I've, I mean, I've known this because I was an undergraduate in the 1960s and I read this stuff then as text, but I've become much more Im- impressed at how central the role of, of all the American social sciences were in the decade and a half after World War II it, for making class and political economy absolutely invisible in discussion of American life, right? It, it's kind of shocking the way they did it, right? Well, but sociologists were the worst. Now, I'm not talking about economists because they, right, they, they worship in a different church than the rest of us do. And it's the church where the cross hangs upside down, as far as I've noticed. But, but the psychologists aren't that much better. But anyway, the psychologists, uh, the sociologists, the, the political scientists, and, 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 and even the anthropologists to whom I tend to have a softer spot. Well, it's extraordinary how they went on a full bore campaign to turn class into culture and to make political mm-hmm. economy in, invisible. Uh, the sociologists did it most flamboyantly, right? Because they l- literally redefined class as a category of culture and did stuff like define classes by the kind of stuff you had in your living room and shit like that, right? Mm-hmm. But the working class in particular increasingly becomes like a category that's in effect of, of ethnicity. So it's like gendered, right? So it's male uh, and it's white uh, and it typically wears a hard hat and a plaid shirt and is by definition conservative. So you can't be working class without being Archie Bunker, basically. And I mean, political scientists did the same, same, same thing. The others did the same. What, what, I mean, same kind of stuff. So by the time you get around to Moynihan, I think the most, uh, yeah, actually, the, the most insidious thing that Moynihan does in that report on the Negro family comes before he gets into it, even right. So in the preface, he just uh, asserts that you know, in America, the way that we think about um, equality now is. Is, is, is between groups. So, so it doesn't have anything to do with like rich versus poor. It's like how my group is you know, stacking up against your group. And that's what opens the door for him to discuss Negro poverty in, in, in the way that he discussed it. And then that gets, and, and that re- reinforces like this conflation and confusion that we've had ever since. And, and, and it works. Um, particularly nicely for um, the PO or for, um, you know, the professional and managerial strata of the people of color populations, 
right? Uh, POC, PMC just has a nice ring. Uh, right, because of the slippage, right, um, between first person singular and first person plural that this discourse depends on and, and enables. Uh, and it's like, uh, who, who could ask for a better hustle, basically, right? Uh, because, but what that means is that class skewed benefits, right, um, that are distributed in a class skewed way um, count for everybody, right, mm-hmm. who identifies with, with, with that group. And now this is jumping probably farther ahead than we want to at this point, I don't know. But you fast forward to 2015 and 2016, right? When um, working class is like no longer just this beefy guy, but, but, but working class it, it's, itself becomes a literal racial category in the mm-hmm. minds of the woke left. Although you know, Walter Ben Michael says properly, we shouldn't be using woke anymore. Uh, because it belongs to the right at this point. But, but so I'll call it the MSNBC left, right? Since there's a picture that comes into my mind when I say it and hear it. Um, that, so that by the time 2016 comes, it, it, if you make a reference to a working class political program, then the immediate response from anti-racist um, activists is, is accusation that... It, that in invoking the working class is just a backhanded way to curry favor with white white racists. So then all of a sudden, blacks and Hispanics and other non non whites, all of whom are disproportionately part of the working class, what well, uh, I mean, no longer get to be part of it. And then therefore, what they're really concerned about is your police killing. And yeah, everybody's concerned about police killing except the police who kill. Uh, but uh, and um, and closing the wealth gap. Well, and and moralism is a big part of the story too, right? I mean, moralism, right, right, how we talk about poverty, and contemporaneously with um, the sort of culturalist turn toward inequality as it pertains to poverty, we have a version of the same thing happening at again roughly the same time or at the same time about race too, right? So the fact that the caste framework let's say, mm-hmm. has come back now um, mm-hmm. is an interesting commentary on this moment because the, when if you take this back to the Oliver Cox era uh, one of the, and, and explore Cox's work in relation to, let's say, his critiques of Gunnar Myrdal. And so Myrdal was one of the champions of kind of moralistic um, case against racism, right? And Oliver Cox, the, the Black social scientist pushed back against that and what what cox was dismayed by is the tendency of Myrdal and a growing number of liberals to talk about racial inequality uh again it's kind of moralistic terms that were free of political economy mm-hmm. and cox was very clear in context and it, it's interesting how not only has he been not received the attention that he deserves it's worse than that there are people <laughs> who essentially misrepresent the case that he made because he certainly was alive to the realness of racism but for him much like the field sisters and and us uh racism was an expression of class exploitation he saw he read jim crow through the lens of the exploitation um of blacks at the hands of southern olig- oligarchs uh and that was a framework that so racism 
though, was bound up. It was inextricably linked to class, right? Class exploitation for Cox. And that was an expression of a sentiment that was quite, you know, dominant um, in the 30s and 40s, right? Through World War II, anyway, you find many Blacks who made some version of that same case uh, that, again, racism, racism and racial inequality were expressions of class exploitation. And, uh, you know, obviously by the end of the 40s, that would change, right? And and along with the contemporaneously um, with um, the turn toward the culturalist understanding of, of poverty, two versions of the same thing. I want to quickly jump back to this question of the Black political class or the PMC, POC, Adolf, as you called it. Um, so in, in your piece, you, um, well, I guess I should say, I, I do feel like, especially on the left or among progressives these days, there is kind of this understanding that oftentimes, um, you know, the people who are sort of the self-appointed spokespeople for a certain race or whatever um, are they claim to speak on behalf of an entire group. It's kind of unclear, like what they're, whether they have an authentic or organic connection to that group. Um, but in your piece, you point out that uh, this criticism sort of takes the form oftentimes of uh, calling these people sellouts, right? Or like talking about them as a sort of misleadership, like the misleadership of, of you know, the black working class or whatever. Um, so I guess the question for you guys is, why is this an incomplete or in or an inadequate way of thinking about the relationship between the black political class to the working class? Oh yeah, okay. I'll start off. Um, uh, I think what's 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 problematic about it is that it presumes the organic connection between you know the spokespersonship stratum mm-hmm. and and the masses, which is another construct I don't especially like because mm-hmm. uh, it tends to be the reciprocal of the leaders, right? And like the thing about a mass is that it's mute. So that's perfect from the standpoint of the <laughs> people who grab the microphone. Um, but yeah, so like it assumes, and, 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 and look, look, I can give a mea culpa to this one because this is like, you know, part of the pathology that my specific age cohort helped to bring to politics. I mean, you know, others had it before us. Like I've, I've been struck you know, by how much my father's popular front cohort uh, tended of, 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 of black activists and intellectuals tended to fall into this kind of thing, thing too. But there's a tendency. So the problem with that formulation, right, with, with the formulations that give us, you know, the misleadership or sellouts is that it posits an organic black population that has a coherent singular interest and that these people, these guys and dolls, um, have somehow been unfaithful to and, and have um, deviated from the mission of, 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 of advancing, right? Um, but there never was that organic population, so there couldn't have been a mission, right? And... And, and, and we're looking at it in particular from the perspective of the emergence of the post-1965 Black political class, that misunderstanding has been crucial to this stratum's ongoing political legitimation, right? Uh, because, uh, because the claim, right, it, it all hinges on the claim, just as it did for Booker Washington on that hot September day in 1895, that he knew what was best for the Negro. Right. Um, and 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 we somehow share an interest that is larger than 
uh, lies beneath our discrete social circumstances, right? So I think that's what the problem with what that is. And, and, and I mean, the late Glenn, yeah, I mean, Glenn Ford is a great guy and, and, uh, uh, and, and whatever, but, but like this is a, um, a little nub between Glenn and me for a long time, because this was his you know, reflex was to um, you know, refer to them as the mis- leadership class. And I said, mm-hmm. well, but that's only if you assume that they, that, that there is a leadership class, right. That, that, that speaks for the entire black, black population, except those individuals who get defined as sellouts. And, and see, this is also what makes it possible for instance, for like a group of people to show up and have a demonstration someplace and call themselves a movement, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, and so I mean, um, social media, right? Uh, you know, the proliferation of different kind of platforms of social media has has facilitated the spread of this kind of bogus politics, right? And and and, uh, and the one might say has you know democracy. What I just sent an email I think, earlier today, wondering what George Kingfish Stevens would be capable of, like if he were alive today, right, with all the social media platforms and with like Kennedy's access to, you know, his endowment, right? Um, but, but that's what the problem is. Um, but I hope that gets to what you were going for. Hooray! Are you going to apologize for Gen X? <laughs> <laughs> what i will say is, is my father would would uh attest to i never liked them that's quite true saying, right. i that's never liked true. them before i even knew we were called gen x so um, <laughs> but i i would essentially endorse what he said emphasis on essentially pun um in insofar as you know the sellout framework clearly presumes that there's a unitary black interest and this gets us back to or or pick a blank fill fill, mm-hmm. fill in a blank group interest right. and this gets us back to the problem of the fact that there are more blacks in the united states than there are canadians um of any race and that no one imagines that there's a singular canadian interest so why would one imagine that there's a singular black interest ever but especially after 1964 and that isn't to say that black americans um, aren't generally more likely than whites, let's say, to um, embrace some version of an active welfare state. But th- there's some caveats there, too, because conservative farmers embrace an active welfare state, too. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But but if we just accept this narrative as we do. All right. So if it's true that blacks are more likely than whites on average to embrace the welfare state, What's also true is that they might embrace it for different reasons, right, with different kinds of policy expectations. So in the 1990s, for example, in the Clinton years, I'd gotten into a lot of uncomfortable, uh, disappointing and infuriating conversations with fellow black Gen Xers. There we are, uh, who (laughs) were not remotely concerned, let's say, didn't share my concerns about Bill Clinton having signed AFDC out of existence, Mm -hmm. right? And um, unfortunately, too many of my fellow petty bourgeois, black peers, Gen X peers, weren't concerned about that at the same time, because they thought those lazy black people, disproportionately Mm -hmm. black and brown people needed to work harder. At the same time, they embraced affirmative action. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my argument then was that they're both from the rights perspective. They're both statist remedies. And at the very least, as I said to a number of my peers then, 
self-interest alone should encourage you to be outraged over welfare reform because it excised a, a layer of fat between the scalpel and the policies that you like as a middle class black yeah. brown or brown man or woman. Um, and it's thus, you know, it augurs something that's not good for your class stratum. But the point of the anecdote is that, and, and I think this is pretty common uh, at the time and, and to this day, is that you could look, if you, if you just burnish the surface just a little bit, or maybe a, a little more than a little bit, but if you, if you burnish the surface, what you would find is that even as Blacks embraced the welfare state, they didn't have the same attachments to it. And the attachments that, that they had were often enough shaped by their class positionality. And so middle-class Blacks often enough shared the same kind of contempt uh, for poor Blacks that everybody else did uh, at that time. I mean, just to, just to take this back to my thing about stand-up comedians on this, this topic, mm-hmm. which it relates to the next book that I will hopefully be writing for Verso, uh, Chris Rock's famous bit, the difference between black people and N-word mm-hmm. was just that, right? I mean, there mm-hmm. was explicitly a line in there about a black man with three jobs, working however many hours a week, hates a you know woman uh, on welfare, right? Or mm-hmm. it might've been a black woman with three jobs, whatever. Um, but nevertheless, hardworking black people hate black people who are on welfare. And who were the black people on welfare in that formulation? They were the N-word. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've been thinking about that quite a bit because I think that there is a tinge of that, um, not a tinge, more than a tinge of that ideology in, in the way that people are reconceiving of the notion of caste, particularly mm-hmm. like the Black intellectual elite, because you have, you know, growing up as a Black person in America, you do have some individual influence over the way that you're perceived if you can signal class um, cultural class, right? Signal your way out of, um, the, the kind of racialized, um, affect that you'll get from other people, right? So you can signal your way out of certain types of racist behaviors. If you go to the doctor and you dress up and you look wealthier, you can kind of signal your way out of, mistreatment. You can signal your way into being taken more seriously in a job interview, et cetera, et cetera. There is something true interpersonally in certain kinds of respectability politics. And so that I think makes people extrapolate from their personal experience that the worst thing about race is that it can declass them once they've actually become rich. So you get all of these anecdotes like, you know, Oprah went into a Louis Vuitton and she got followed around by a a security guard or, and there are anecdotes like that in the book cast by Isabel Wilkerson, I think is her name. Um, As though like the, the thing that shows you how evil racism is, is that it can endure when you have earned your way out of blackness as a class position because there's a conflation of being poor and being black that a lot of people black people are told to fight their way out of and and that's true of many different immigrant groups but it's particularly strong and pronounced in certain types of black politics and i think that it is um part of the kind of ideological bent of erasing class as an issue and remaking black issues as the issues of the black elite 
it's part of trying to have that distance and say, no, we're not that kind of black person. We're the deserving kind. We should be given access because we like earned it. It, it really doesn't like, it's like what you were saying about your student. It doesn't fundamentally argue against these deeply entrenched ideas about who is poor and why they're poor. It just says like, don't make this assumption uh, about this set of people or don't um, or remove structures that would keep the, this set of people, you know, in a lower class position. Well, I'll tell you about that though. I mean, that goes pretty far back. I mean, that's part of uh, Homer Adolph Plessy's brief in, in, in his lawsuit, right? I mean, that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's a Louisiana separate car law. Yeah. You didn't make class distinctions among blacks. And that mm-hmm. was uh, um, a standard part of black arguments against um, the imposition of Jim, Jim Crow at the end of the 19th century. It, it was also all over uh, you know, Charles, Charles Chestnut's fiction Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and, and Anna Julia Cooper, I guess I'm supposed to do like this when I mentioned because she's like supposed to be a founder of black feminism, but was very clearly right. Um, uh, you know, class skewed in her. Uh, well, they all were because it's a class phenomenon. And what mm-hmm. Julia mentioned, um, you know, Du Bois in the 1890s, he was the same deal. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were and argued this actually in, in the uh, in the Philadelphia Negro that part of the problem. Uh, with uh, you know race relations was that the only black people whom um, um, uh, whom respectable white people ever came in contact with were the menials and the coons basically yeah not the uh, talented tenth that right right so the so I mean, that's been part of the class class program uh, um, all the way through and sometimes it gets really pathological like people like Shelby Steele who had his fifteen minutes in the nineties it was uh, but also like a bunch of uh, Yale, uh, Yale and other I mean Ivy League undergraduates in the Obama cohort, right? And roughly speaking, uh, you lamented that uh, you know all of a sudden, like um, you know, um, you, know um, you know the ghetto rap uh, style was supposed to be what's authentically black. Well, what's happened to us? Like we've done all the right stuff, and nobody. So uh, I mean, why can't we be uh, you know, authentically black? Mm-hmm. But then by the time you know, Spike, Spike Lee was inflicted upon us, right, you also saw, though, that the class had found a way to kind of split the difference so that they'd constructed their own notion of, 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 of authentic blackness that depended on a caricature of the old black bourgeoisie um, against whom this character was was deployed, right? So, you know, the old black bourgeoisie who put on airs and liked classical music uh, was was one problem, but then this ghetto girl over here was the other problem, right? But yeah, it's been around for a while, but it's definitely um, a trope, shall we say? Well, and just to amplify this point, um, that in, um, you know, for someone like W.B. Du Bois and, of course, as I would have alluded to previously, the Urban League, that for them, the part of the problem with racism was the failure to make the class distinctions among blacks, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just to put it succinctly. And oddly, I mean, this is what I find a little strange about Wilkerson's argument, um, is that oddly that announces, I would argue, not caste, but the fact that race is a shorthand for class standing. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is a class society, 
the point of yes. race on some level, it's, it's invention as the field sisters have argued. Um, and as I heard Barbara Fields argue two days a week when I TA'd for her back in the, in the mid to late 1990s, the point the invention of race was essentially came down to explaining why black people were exceptions to liberalism, right? mm. why slaves mm-hmm. uh, and the masses of black people were exceptions to American liberalism. And um, what that means practically is why blacks are, you know, permanently at the bottom in a society that's an anti-caste society, but as a class society, right? And what that, and, and race is the vehicle for doing so, right? The presumed biological distinctiveness, if you will, of so-called racial groups, as I've said to my, my students over the years, is a way to justify, or had been, a way to justify exploiting Blacks permanently and forever, right? Um, and a version of the same thing with American Indians. And of course, it's gotten much more complicated um, over the last couple of centuries uh, or, or more uh, at this point, and even more complicated, especially complicated in the last 50 to, to 70 years. But that's where that shorthand comes into play, right? Uh, but it and- seems like, you know, that points to a need to understand political economy rather than a need to erase it, right? If you're saying that this category is, and and I do think that you're right, that that in Wilkerson's book, she's kind of, you know, gesturing at that. But it seems like more of the issue is that you can be declassed by, you can be a wealthy Black person that's declassed by your Blackness. Um, Not that you can be declassed at all, or not that the class stratifications are so intense that, you know, they're, consigning millions of people to misery and death. You know what I mean? It's like a little bit, it's like. But, and there's the flip side that your class standing at the very least mitigates the Mm -hmm. race, Mm -hmm. right? The problems of racism. And, uh, you know, I mean, I I won't bore anybody with any personal anecdotes about that any more than my father would likely bore anybody with any personal anecdotes about that. But I think most middle and upper class blacks, if they reflected, on the realities of their life experiences would have to confront the fact that their class standing ultimately often enough, not in every single instance, but mitigates racism, um, you know, to varying degrees and certainly changes the kinds of issues um, that, that are important to them, right? Whether or not it's, let's say, affirmative action versus welfare reform is an expression of one's class standing. Uh, and um, so the other thing, though, that's that's kind of interesting about this point, Ariella, that that you had raised about class as a way to um, diminish racism's like presentation that that was post-racialism. Right. I mean, and that that was, of course, one of the things that was infuriating about Obama's post-racialism, which I don't know if it's fair to say it was an anachron was an anachronism. I mean, I guess it was more atavistic. <laughs> than anything else right because it was an expression of a long-standing view but in its most recent form um, post-racialism was just a very minor update to role modeling ideology uh, which is bound up of course with underclass ideology so that for all intent and purpose part of the appeal of the post-racial framework um, that Obama was selling and that, that, you know, I think many blacks embraced to varying degrees. I don't know anyone who embraced post-racialism, the moniker, but you can embrace the substance of something while formally rejecting the title. And I think a lot of black people embraced 
the substance or at least elements of the substance of post-racialism while simultaneously rejecting the moniker. But, but a big chunk of it, as I was reminded of every Black History Month, every MLK dinner that I attended or Black History Month talk that, that I went to between 2008 and 2012, if not 2008 and 2015, was some version of um, if you believe it, you can achieve it, right? I mean, that you can overcome your circumstances by acting right and, um, you know, taking school seriously, of course, right? Turning off the TV and reading a book and taking advantage of, of the opportunities that are before you, which everyone has to do, but that doesn't make it a panacea, right? I mean, you don't have a choice, but to make the most of the opportunities that, that are before you, but we don't actually all read from the same menu of, of choices, right? Uh, and so some of us who are the children of PhDs, let's say, uh, um, and uh, raised by relatively well-educated and prosperous professionals, either in Indonesia or Southwest Atlanta, Georgia, <laughs> uh, have more options before them. Right. Uh, then some of us who grow up in Elm Haven apartment projects or Techwood homes in New Haven or Atlanta, Georgia. Right. Um, because in option A, you've kind of won the parent lottery, even if there is racism. And that means even if there's racism, you have more choices before you if your parents um, are relatively prosperous or if you yourself are relatively prosperous. You might be able to actually afford tuition, let's say, or have a job with healthcare, um, with health insurance, uh, and not have to worry about turning the lights on or have, have the ability to pay for a tutor, uh, in school that, you know, if, if you're disadvantaged economically, these things are not on the table. And of course you may have the opportunity to smoke the reefer who says that anyway, I mean, the reefer really, I should have done the Obama when I said that and, you know, pushed my ear out, but anyway, um, I prefer to call it weed. Thank you very much. But, um, you can can smoke the reefer or weed uh, and it's no big deal, right? Because you're doing it in your, uh, in the dorm room, let's say in your selective liberal arts college where everybody gets to smoke weed and nobody calls campus security because the class creaming there. You do at a public university though, as I've learned from students at the public university that I work at, the the security officers are real police, real police, right? They're state troopers, essentially. And you're going to get busted for real. Um, so if, so depending on how much money, how much tuition money you pay to go to college, even there's a difference in experience that you can have in the dorm rooms, um, despite the realness of racism. So Tere, your, your anecdote about TAing for Barbara Fields uh, reminded me of this quote uh, that is actually from one of your articles, Adolf, from uh, TNR. Uh, so I want to read it really quickly and then get both of your responses. You write, one plain rhetorical tick in the world of race reductionist scholarship is the casual referencing of Black American experience across space and time in the first person plural. Although this tendency seems to have become a zealously defended norm in the great awakening, it's hardly new. My son, as a graduate student teacher's assistant in the mid-1990s, would query African-American history students who used we in their seminar papers to refer to slaves and sharecroppers. Were you alive in 1860 or 1880? All right, so Toure, uh, explain your harsh grading. <laughs> um, actually, what I, what, I wanted to, what I wanted to ask both of you is... Um, 
you know, I, I think we've been talking a little bit about some of these sort of pitfalls or shortcomings of talking about a kind of or invoking a kind of trans historical like black experience. Right. Um, I, I wanted to specifically ask you both about um, this idea of a like ongoing and trans historical black liberation struggle or black freedom struggle, because I think that we hear that a lot. And you you talk about this a little bit in the Socialist Register piece. Um, and I thought that the quote about uh, Toure's harsh grading was maybe like a good entry point into that. So. There, there are no harsh graders in the Ivy League. So. <laughs> That's exactly right. So, um, but I, I will say that to this day, I ask my students some version of that same question. No, um, it's a preemptive. Uh, I think it, I usually do it on the first day uh, and tell them not to use the first person plural uh, ever uh, when discussing historical figures. But um, I'll, I will defer to the boomer read uh, and I'll, I will, uh, as the Gen Xer would, follow him. <laughs> well, I'll say this too. Like, it wasn't just that he was um, like that with, uh, with those students. But I remember, like, he was also um, TAing during the period when uh, you know, Columbia was setting uh, the NCAA record for consecutive <laughs> football losses. And that he would say things to the students like, look, you better pass this course if you want to get that Wall Street job because clearly there's no NFL in your future, right? Uh, and, and things like that, uh, you know, but others as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, so, uh, uh, yeah, like I grew up with, uh, with uh, the Black freedom movement, the Black liberation struggle, right? Uh, during the transition out of Black power in, in, into the different, you know, prefab uh, ideological orientations that replaced it that Cedric Johnson's first, first, first book is a great examination of, um, you, you could see then that part of the narrative for the new ideology was, was like with a chemistry textbook, that what you do is you redefine, or rather you reinterpret the history, all prior existing history of Black life uh, as a story of the inevitable un- unfolding toward what whatever this new position is, right? And it, it's, but I mean, like I said, it's like chemistry texts. Um, but so that what I remember being in a conference uh, you know, at at the kickoff of Pan Africanism, where some some guy was talking about how the first Pan Africanist was the first woman on a slave ship who threw her baby uh, on overboard to drown because she didn't want to see it become a slave, right? The problem is that the notion of a black, of, of, of a um, trans-historical black freedom movement, right? Uh, first of all, is a colossal historical, what I'm reification, right? I mean, it, it suggests, you know, something like, Frederick Douglass wasn't Booker T. Washington and Booker T. Washington wasn't, I don't know, uh, A. Philip Randolph right, or, exactly. or even Walter White for right. that matter. And they're all Obama. Right, 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 right. Yeah. right. totally, totally. Uh, and I mean, the premise is that there is this, that there's a supra-historical Black presence. It's almost like a communist party, right? Except it's not an institution and it hovers over us all. That sort of guides and directs everything. And this mindset 
first of all, I mean, influenced at the very beginning of the field of study of Black American political thought, it was already there. And that's partly because it grew up in sort of the moment of, of, of Cold War consensualism, ironically. But the idea was that, that, that there's a seamless, timeless, uh, I mean, Negro struggle. And that often enough was an oscillation between two poles, either protest or accommodation or moderation and a militance. And then eventually it became nationalism versus uh, I mean, integrationism. <clears throat> but it's a fundamentally ass backward and utterly useless way to try to make, make, make sense of any phenomena that exists within history. For 30 years, I could say that and just kind of be done with it. I think it's even more in, insidious now though, um, you know, because it's part of, well, when we think about this, um, you know, there's a sort of nominal black left politics, right? That sort of um, runs out of steam in like 1965, right? So like, like it, 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 it can't accommodate anything that's happened since the Voting Rights Act. Like it can't accommodate the emergence of a black political class. And it's always re- reaching back to some, you know, to some shit that happened in slavery, basically, right? Or I mean, the equivalent, but certainly something prior to the defeat of the Jim Crow um, complex, right? Like in the South. At past a certain point, you have to ask why, right? I mean, why is it that all of that, that the baseline of, of contemporary black political argument now hinges on analogy to the segregation era or to slavery? Mm-hmm. And I think in, increasingly it becomes clear, right, that the answer to that question ha- has to, or is, that, that it's possible to pretend um, that that in those earlier periods, all black people shared a common interest. That it's much more uh, I mean difficult to sell if we look at the present on uh, on its own terms. So so that for instance, you know, just to shoot the fish in the barrel. Um, um, but Michelle Alexander, uh, you book the New Jim Crow, powerful idea. You read the book, and all the way through, she says it, it's it's. It's like Jim Crow, it's like Jim Crow, it's like Jim Crow, it's like, it's a, you know, like Jim Crow. And then we get to the point finally where the rubber has to meet the road and she says, well, actually it's not, right? No, it's not like it at all. Well, what then is the power of the analogy if even she has to admit that it doesn't work? And that means that, you know, from the standpoint of the historian of ideologies, which I was professionally for decades, you know, this is what prompts the question, Smells like there's some bullshit ideology going on, right? And I mean that's and and that's where we are. So that's why I think that the uh, and, and Toure, Ken Warren, Willie Leggett, and and a few others of us actually wrote a little piece together, a little statement uh, um, um, about this question in uh, Nonsite a few years ago. And and um, part of the punchline is that the notion of a trans-historical singular black movement is fundamentally a reactionary one at this point. Any follow-up to right? It, it's hard to follow up on that one. So I, wasn't, I wasn't quite expecting all that. So um, I probably should have gone first. <laughs> well, 
I want to link that to, you know, the way in which um, gentrification is commonly discussed, uh, because that's an aspect of your paper. And it's something that I've, you know, noticed that Jen and I have talked about before, where there's a couple things going on. One is that, um, like many issues that we face that are real issues, the neoliberal narrative is that it's like a bunch of individuals that are collectively deciding, like, I'm artsy and I'm going to go gentrify this neighborhood. And so even where I live, you hear people be like, I don't want to be a handmaid into gentrification by joining the food co-op. And it's like, are you a real estate company? (laughs) (laughs) It's just as dumb as me being like, I am doing just as much as ExxonMobil to contribute to climate change because I didn't recycle this plastic bottle, right? Like, but this is where neoliberalism locates, you know, social responsibility. And just as a a little aside, like, I don't want to be too dismissive of the sincere fiction of that for people, because I do think that that idea comes from the, the primary impulse for democracy, which is that like our world should be an aggregate of our individual preferences, thoughts, and ideals. Um, But that's not the world that we're in. And so we've got to shove that aside. You can't stop gentrification by like being a nicer, friendlier, or even poorer type of white person. But I wanted to talk about that part of the paper because you wrote um, debates over gentrification commonly pit cliches of cultural preservation and progress against each other. And I think that plays a lot into what we've been talking about around stereotypes of blackness, what authenticity is, if there's a real coalition. I think debates about gentrification would would like, (laughs) I don't know, posit that it's okay if we have every black neighborhood be like a little Italy or something Mm. and like a like a little kind of prefabricated version of a black neighborhood and that that neighborhood could never like be nice in the ways that uh, gentrified neighborhoods are supposed to be so I was wondering if you could both you know speak to that tendency speak to the kind of cliches that are underneath it and then also like why is that damaging to the work of the people that are trying to you know fight against gentrification all right, so, Sandy, you want to go first? Yeah, I'll set it up. And and again, I'll try to be quick uh, playing against type. Um, I'll say this. I spent the summer of 2010 and 2011 in Northwest D.C. and um, a heavily gentrified area. And I will tell you that, that most of the time I spent in D.C. Uh, was spent in Northwest in that very section going back to 1994, um, my first year in grad school uh, that summer. And I hated it. And I hated it with a passion. And I hated it more with each passing year, because what I saw and what I was reacting to just seemed to get worse and worse. And on a purely visceral level, um, what I hated was what looked like to me black and brown displacement, right? On a on a boots on the ground, um, inter- personal interaction kind of way. The experience I had, even though I didn't grow up in that neighborhood, I, I'd seen this before, uh, and it really pissed me off. And I, again, as I moved up through the demographics, it pissed me off more, probably not just because the process had 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 advanced that much more, uh, you know, over 15 years or whatever it was, but it was also that the type of people on a visceral level who, you know, gentrified bugged the hell out of me. There was a smug sense of self-satisfaction that was bound up with an often enough explicit 
commitment to cosmopolitanism, that's not the end of the world. I mean, that's not a bad thing, uh, except that that commitment to cosmopolitanism announced the kind of superiority, uh, moral superiority, that was, um, again, bound up with notions of neighborhood revitalization and or community revitalization. And it struck me in real time living there, um, you know, for, for those months in 2010, 2011, that the community revitalization piece was problematic because communities kind of need a couple things to be communities and need space and people uh, at minimum. And the space was the space that hadn't changed, but the people had been displaced. So, so it wasn't community revitalization because you're creating a whole new community. I say this as a preamble because I can appreciate why, again, particularly on a visceral level, why people who are in the throes of, of gentrification, which I almost slipped and called deindustrialization, my bad. But anyway, um, they sound similar. I, I can appreciate why people who are in the, in the throes of that um, interpret it at, you know, through this lens of cultural displacement because it would kind of feel that way. Um, it feels that way, obviously, because what you have is in working middle class, working class and poor neighborhoods, upscale residents coming in, property values going up, right? Policing reflecting the um, dispositions of the municipality and the developers to transform communities that had been middle class, working class, or poor, and I should stress including middle class, right, to transform them into upscale communities. The reality, though, is while, again, it can very easily feel like this is a racial culturalist project um, for reasons that I hope that I've, I've touched upon, and, and, they're, and it's often really infuriating, but again, I want to come back to that. The end game really isn't that, right? The, the end game really isn't about you know, transforming the culture of a community. The end game is about growing the tax base. Uh, mm-hmm. And that the failure to appreciate the, the function of gentrification in late capitalism as a kind of compensation for, um, or an expression of an approach to governance that gives businesses a pass, right? I mean, in which, um, revitalization going back to urban renewal required municipalities often with the assistance of the federal government and certainly with urban renewal with the assistance of the federal government and the state uh, to attract, to subsidize business development, let's say, um, that the commitment to a kind of growth politics that encourages um, you know, municipalities and states to give businesses a pass with respect to their contribution to the tax base requires that municipalities get this money, get revenue to maintain the services from somebody. And that the target shifts from the employers to the employees. And if you need the employees ultimately to bolster the tax base <coughs> and that and the employees are going to include renters and property owners in those, those communities to be clear, then what you need is upscale renters and property owners to pay the taxes that the municipality needs to maintain these services. And, you know, to go back to the point of the discomfort that can arise, and I'll play with this anecdote. I was looking through my my, um, printouts. When I was in DC in the summer of 2011, 
an article came out in the New York Times, um, and it was on the changing demographics in the city. I think it was <coughs> July of 2011. And it focused on the fact that for the first time, I think that summer, D.C. was no longer Chocolate City. Um, I guess it was more Mocha City, but it was no longer a majority black city. There was a slim white majority at that point. And it, this article um, explored the tensions that were brewing in the city. And it sort of touched upon displacement through taxation it was a big part of it, um, or, or that was an element of the article. But it also explored the cultural dimensions. And one of them was, I guess, the, this was in Northwest D.C., uh, an ordinance was passed that banned the sale of chicken wings at 7-Eleven. Um, and again, I mean, like when I read this, I was beside my blackness informed my my outrage over this. Um, I could not I couldn't have imagined anything more racist, um, to, to be blunt keeping mm-hmm. it visceral than that, especially since the rationale was, and, and I should tell you, my dad might, might elaborate on this. The apartment that I sublet, uh, in 2010, 2011, as luck would have, it was in the very same building that my dad had lived in, um, uh, in, I don't know, 1976 or something like that. Yeah. yeah. When he was teaching at Howard university, no idea, total, total right. coincidence. It's crazy. Completely yeah. different, different situation. But, um, in terms of neighborhood composition, but among the reasons that that it was so infuriating and seemed so transparently racist to me, though I would say it's a little more complicated than this. It's still messed up though, um, and more messed up than is captured simply by saying it's racist. Um, is that the rationale for banning the sale of chicken wings? The formal rationale, anyway, was that chicken wings were a choke hazard to small dogs. No, and the parks. <laughs> I, I couldn't make this up. And the parks I'm about to that, leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't kill the messenger. Um, and and uh, the parks, the parks that had been home to soccer fields and basketball courts in my dad's day were now dog parks. Right. And of course, chicken discarded chicken wings were a um, attractive nuisance, if you will. But but they were they would attract vermin. And I thought this was fascinating because you couldn't swing a dead cat in that area without hitting restaurants um, that, that were, that were the cuisine of Asia or um, Latin America where there was rice. And the key there is from friends of mine who work in the restaurant industry, tell me that there's nothing that's a bigger magnet for rodents than Mm -hmm. rice. Hmm. Um, And nobody was trying to ban that, but they were trying to ban the sale of chicken wings, not at the cool bars, but at 7-Eleven. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's actually something worth reflecting on. They weren't banning the chicken wings at the cool bars mm-hmm. where the white professionals who worked on the Hill, but also the black and brown professionals who worked on the Hill right. um, mm-hmm. would get chicken wings. They were trying to ban chicken wing sales from 7-Eleven. And I will confess, you know, I still got some Southwest Atlanta. I mean, my instant reaction wasn't just that it was racist. I also thought, damn, who, who the hell is eating chicken wings from 7-Eleven? <laughs> I love chicken wings, but I haven't been, I couldn't imagine getting my wings from 7-Eleven. But, you know, reflecting on, uh, you know, who was likely to get chicken wings. I mean, what I saw anyway, was people off, getting off shifts mm-hmm. and young people, right? Yeah. And Because these were affordable mm-hmm. and yeah. readily available at all hours of the day, chicken wings, right? 
But but again, I mean, it wasn't just a race piece there, even with the banning of the sale of chicken wings, even as my visceral reaction was I could imagine nothing more more racist than that, right? It's from the mind of D.W. Griffith. Right. But, um, but if you stop to think about where specifically they were looking to ban chicken wings, it was 7-Eleven. That announced on, you know, subtly maybe, um, at least if subtly if one is, doesn't think about gentrification as a class project, if one does, I mean, it's pretty transparent, mm-hmm. that announced the complexity of what's informing gentrification. And, I, and I'll just say this, that um, if you misdiagnose the problem, then you can't fix it, right? I mean, there's no right. way to, to cure it. So the problem with thinking about this in terms of cultural authenticity or racial group displacement, which are two sides of the same coin, is you look past the fact that many of these gentrified neighborhoods are actually pretty class heterogeneous. I mean, not all of them. Or sorry, uh, racially, they're, right. they're pretty racially heterogeneous, but they're class homogeneous, right? So you could pick up diversity in a photograph of the neighborhood if you were so inclined. But um, what you wouldn't find is a lot of diversity if you were to, to look at um, their taxes, right? Um, their W-2s. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I'm going to um, well, I'm going to bring uh well, I'm bringing the chicken wing all the way back uh, to um, to the older Adams Morgan when I lived in that building. Because one day um, I was walking pa- past another building close um, close to Connecticut Avenue uh, with, with with a friend of mine who later went on to be like a big um, C- CBS News uh, personality. And as we walked past this building, something hit hit her on the top of the head from above. And it turns out it was a chicken wing. Somebody tossed out of uh, a window um, from, you know, from the third floor of an apartment building, but, 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 but they're keeping it Northwest Washington for, for a second. Um, the, in the, a few years before you lived there, right. A couple of years before you, you, you lived in Columbia Heights uh, or at Adams Morgan. Um, uh, there was such a flood in the U Street area that just turned so quickly that it was like the most, uh, I mean, it was the most rapid and um, extreme displacement that I've seen anywhere. And I've studied this stuff. Uh, but one thing I noticed was that it, it, it came late enough, right? So when, um, so when the purported displacement was, was on the table, uh, in the mid seventies, um, it wasn't quite this sophisticated. Uh, the incoming populations weren't quite as accommodated yet to living amidst uh, broke people of color, which is also a way of thinking uh, of understanding that the police hadn't been completely successful in communicating that they would protect you know the incomers for as long as they had to until they got rid of the other people. Um, but what I'd noticed by the early 2000s is that um, heritage um, acknowledgement had become part of the game so that you displace. So the logic of displacement was, was that the rent up upgrading displaces the working class people who had lived there, who were by and large people of color, but not always. But what we got instead was like markers telling us, 
where, you know, the house that Duke Ellington lived in, right? And I mean, stuff like that. And that struck me. And then, like, um, I went out um, to visit my father a couple of times and, and, and had to drive, at, uh, I had to fly from Tulsa to, uh, you know, to drive to Northwest Arkansas. And what I noticed was that along, I guess, I think we was State 40, that there were signs all along the way pointing to which uh, Native American groups used to live here. Well, until they got jacked, and I thought, huh, it's the same thing. But all of that is to say, however, that I would, I very much argue against the culturalist understanding of the phenomena at this point. And that's why even um, I would argue against calling it a gentrification. I know people aren't going to stop doing that, uh, both, both because it's familiar and it's less infelicitous than my alternative, which is publicly subsidized, rent-intensifying re- redevelopment, right? <clears throat> but that's what the process is. And, the other th- and another feature that I noticed um, in that mid-2000s of an episode was talking to Black people about it, right? Uh, um, a typical response was, yeah, I know, it's really too bad about the people who are being displaced, you know, that's unfortunate, but there are a lot of opportunities there if you play your cards right and get involved. And this is what's been happening every place, place else there as, as, as well as every place else. And I think we mentioned this in, in the chapter too, but that one of the things that happens is that if you define the problem as cultural displacement, right, then, then that opens the door for a response to be representation in the process right and and what once again through the alchemy that 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 makes the first person singular into the first person plural the benefit for the developer from from the community you know stands stands in for uh, benefits supposedly going to the people who are displaced uh, and uh, but 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 I say at bottom, right, right? The number one problem with this is that in misrepresenting uh, the nature of the actual process, right? As uh, Nutore said, like it, if you misidentify, uh, you know, the process, then you can't address it like in any effective way, and and that's certainly the case about what uh, gets called gentrification. Everyone. And- and, you know, it, it's worth adding, and this certainly contributes to why the reflex is not unreasonably to understand this as a process of racial displacement. You know, it, the process of gentrification includes making life uncomfortable for the longtime residents. Right. So quality of life law ordinances, you know, from right. when I lived in New York in Chancellor Giuliani's regime of terror. And, um, and anyway, you know, before he became America's mayor and then before the people soured on him once again, but anyway, so the jaywalking ordinances that Giuliani, um, you know, pressed for the, I think when I lived in New York, there was, um, uh, pretty early in, in his regime. I mean, in his mayoralty, uh, they passed an ordinance that, um, required homeless people staying at least 20 or panhandling oh, yeah. at least 20 feet away or something like that from ATMs. Right. But stop and frisk, right? Um, all of that kind of uh, broken windows policing is all part of the mix of preparing the neighborhood 
um, and, and letting some neighborhoods just die on the vine too, right? That's all part of the mix um, of preparing neighborhoods for clearance, essentially, uh, for upscale residents, right? And if you are a person who lives in such a community as that process is, is taking hold and everybody uh, in that community or most quote unquote look like you, belong to your uh, racial group, then it's very logical to mm-hmm. fall back on gentrification as simply um, and, you know, and the forces that contribute to it, right, um, um, or, or complement it, uh, it's very logical to fall back on this is just some old racist bullshit, because it is part of that. Um, sure. I think there's no question about that. But the end game isn't, isn't really racial displacement as much as it is um, the end game of ensuring that, that residents can pay, uh, you know, contribute to the tax coffers of the locality. And what that means, among other things, as my father alluded to, is there are a lot of black and brown people who are the are among the beneficiaries, uh, too, of gentrification. And that's, you know, worth reflecting on. Yeah, I'd say one. Yeah, yeah I'd add one one small wrinkle uh, uh, that makes it even cheesier, because since so much of the redevelopment is subsidized anyway and, and is subsidized with the promise that eventually uh, you know, the new occupants will start paying the taxes that will in, in, enhance uh, well, with the revenue base. Uh, the fact is that often enough, uh, the subsidies that have been given to the developers are never recouped. So, so part of the way the game goes is, uh, well, well, yeah, we gotta take public money to subsidize this privately appropriated development but don't worry, right? Because it's going to turn into money for the public exchequer uh, I mean, later on. But then four or five years down down the road, you got to cut the budgets, and, or rather, cut the libraries, uh, cut the road work, right? Because you haven't made up the money that's that that's been given away in 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 in, in upscale tax breaks. So that's a pretty cheesy thing. So in that sense, it's it's it is the new urban renewal. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. very much. Yep. 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 All right. Well, you've both been very generous with your time. So I think we are just about to wrap, but before we all go, Adolf, what's going on with your background? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it it is what it's called. well, like I love the Surfers Museum in Santa Cruz so much. No, no, no. Uh, I mean this is what it's called. Um, um, the drawback, and the drawback is when the tide uh, is un- is drawn unnaturally far from the shore, uh, you know, on the shoreline on a beach, uh, just before um, the mounting of a tsunami. And this is like a photo of the drawback and the tsunami wave coming, and it's just kind of a um, a metaphor for I think where we are in American politics. I know it's been haunting me for the last few months, so. That's so feel, feeling optimistic about midterms, are we? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, now it can haunt us. Um, I think I feel optimistic if we get to midterms. So. All right. Well, professors, read and read. Uh, I encourage everybody to check out your Socialist Register article, which we will be linking in the description box. Thank you so much for your time and uh, good to see you both. Thanks yeah, again, I- both of you, for coming on. Yeah, thank thank you. you so much for having us. Um, as always, come back time. soon. Yeah. All righty. Take care. 
All right. It is always good to hear from both Professor Reeds, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, we've had them both on separately in the past, uh, but this is the first time that we've been able to grab them with a duo. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. Yeah, me too. It was really great to have them both on, like you said. All right. Well, thank you to everybody for watching. Thanks again to both Professor Reeds for being with us tonight, and we will see you next week. Have a good night.